This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. The word docent comes from the same Latin root as the word doctor. Doctor, of course, has come to be associated with people who are practitioners of medicine, while docent has come to mean someone who serves as a guide, often in a museum or a zoo. In both cases, though, the original meaning of the word has been a little lost because the Latin docere means to teach. But words don't just take on semantic meanings over time. They also take on evocative meaning. Like, like when I say the word docent, what kind of person comes to mind? Well, if you're like most people, the image is probably of an older person. But my guest today says maybe it's time to change that. And that might even be a key to having people think of docents less as tour guides and more as teachers. Kelly Lynn Mulvey is an associate professor in the Department of Psychology at North Carolina State University. Her research focuses on building understanding about beliefs, intents, desires, and perception. And she has a particular interest in how children challenge norms. To that end, she was a part of a team of researchers who recently found that teenage docents have a positive effect on the experience of visitors to museums and zoos and aquariums. And that study found that while visitors of all ages reported having a greater interest when interacting with docents of any age, their engagement and interest were higher if they interacted with youth docents. Kelly Lynn Mulvey, welcome. Thank you for having me today. I'm glad to be here. I'm always really interested in the backstory behind research ideas and especially social science research ideas because I think these things usually start with some sort of experience. Some researcher was walking down the street one day and they noticed something. I'm wondering for you and your team, what happened here? Did you visit a museum one day and run into a teenage docent? What was the thing? That's a great question. So this project developed through lots of conversations. Um, there are members of our team who are academics who have focused on understanding learning processes and understanding social development for years, and other members of our team who have their boots on the ground and have been working with docents, both adult docents and teen docents, for years. And because of work that we were doing collaborating on research in some of the sites, in particular, I was working at Adventure Children's Museum doing some work on gender stereotypes around who can and should play with different types of toys and got talking with my colleague Mark Drews over there about what kinds of experiences they provide for not only the little kids who come into this children's museum, but for teenagers around how to engage with the public, around how to build their science knowledge, and as I learned more and more about this program, at the same time, my collaborator, Adam Hartstone-Rose, was working at a zoo, Riverbank Zoo, and learning about the zoo teens there. And so together, we started thinking about how might we understand better not only the experience that these teens have when they go and serve as docents in these different types of sites, but also what impact they have on the visitors who come through these sites. This study was built on a lot of surveys in several different types of informal learning centers. What did the survey process look like? It was kind of fun. So we set up at different exhibits. We tried to select exhibits where the content was the same on the walls as what a docent could provide so that there would be continuity in what information you could gain. And we set basically a survey research team up at the exit of that exhibit and invited people to participate if they wanted to. It only took them a short period of time to complete the survey, and we could have everyone in the family participate, so children and adults, which was kind of neat as well. And so you were asking them on the way out whether they had had an interaction with a docent. 
Absolutely. We asked them, but then we also did our own double check because we knew who was staffing the exhibit, if there was someone staffing the exhibit that day. It's especially important that we got that double check because sometimes the folks who traveled through the exhibit didn't necessarily know if it was an adult or a teenager who was there, but we knew for sure. I can imagine, you know, like kids sometimes have a little hard time, right? Like exactly. like a teenager seems like an adult and a 20-something seems like a 40-something and, and so on. Absolutely. So your team did these surveys in five different animal parks or museums, and you asked about their experiences in general, but you also took note, as you said, of whether they'd interacted with an adult or a teen educator. And then you start looking at these data. What are the things that jumped out at you? So we were interested in trying to capture a few different ways in which they might have benefited from interacting with docents or visiting the exhibit. So we asked them how interested they were. We also asked them how much they think they learned, and then we gave them some content questions. So we basically wrote multiple choice questions in partnership with all of the different sites and matched those questions based on the age level of the person who is taking the survey to make sure that it was developmentally appropriate for them, but tapped the same content. And then we asked the participants to complete those content questions, as well as to tell us how much they enjoyed and were interested in the topic and how much they felt like they learned from the exhibit as they visited it. And your team interviewed people in a zoo and in an aquarium and a children's museum and a tech-themed museum and a health-themed science center. Did there seem to be any differences in the ways in which people perceive their interactions with teen docents based on the place where they were? That's a great question. So we statistically controlled for that to make sure that we were able to draw conclusions across the different sites. But even within each site, we sampled from many different exhibits. And so if we actually looked at the variation across every tiny exhibit, every specific exhibit, then we probably would find some patterns. But what's really nice of findings that we have here is that they generalized across all of these different types of sites. That overall, it was beneficial to talk to someone. So either an adult educator or a youth educator, was associated with better outcomes. And then specifically, we found that those youth educators were especially beneficial in some contexts. So what were the contexts where they were especially beneficial? So we were really excited about this. We thought that we would find that if you were a kid and you interacted with a teenager, you were going to have some benefit. And we were thinking that based on Vygotsky's research and social learning theory that basically says you benefit and you learn more when you interact with another individual. and and having someone who is kind of close to you in your knowledge base is especially helpful. So we figured we'd see that benefit for kids. And we did see that benefit for kids, especially kids who are about 9 to 11 years old. But we also found that the adults did better when they interacted with the youth educator, which is super interesting and really exciting to find. What do you think is going on there? Okay, so kids learn better from kids. That sort of, I guess, that tracks. But what's going on with the adult? What's happening in people's minds where they say like, hey, this was a good and beneficial experience? So we think a couple things are going on. We think that for the kids, that the teenage exhibitors probably had a better sense of the knowledge that those children might already have because they were there not too long ago. And so if you can calibrate how you're talking to someone based on what you think they know, you're probably likely to get a pretty good feed on how you might pose new information to them or how you might engage them. For the adults, we think that it's possible that there was a charm factor going on, that basically these adults were seen as seeing these kids as cute and they wanted to engage them and provide them opportunities. So they spent more time engaging with them and talking to them and kind of drawing them out. 
and that that might be what's going on. However, we're really interested in it, and we're trying now to figure out what's going on with those adults benefiting from interacting with youth educators by doing videotapes of family visits to these different museums. So I have a graduate student here in the U.S., and then there's a graduate student in the U.K. who have been pouring through hours and hours and hours of videotaped family interactions to see what's really going on here that makes for a better experience when you're interacting with a youth educator. Okay, so you're an adult, you go in, you see this teenager, you want to be supportive, you want to be, so you ask questions and you engage a little bit more. But when you do those sorts of things, the effect of that is that you learn too. Absolutely. We also are starting to learn that this has a benefit for the teenager educators as well. So that there's a lot of data that um, we have from this project where we ask the teenage educators to tell us about their science interests, their engagement, what they want to be when they grow up, how they're doing in school. And we're finding that these programs are super beneficial for the teenagers too. Some of that might be from these interactions with adults who come into the sites. Well, it's got to be fun to work with these these particular young people too, because they're just so, I mean, anybody who wants to be a docent in a museum or a zoo is, you know, they're kind of precocious to begin with, right? We think so. They, they have many different reasons for selecting to participate in these programs. Some of them are interested, honestly, in joining those informal science learning sites as practitioners eventually when they grow up. So they want to work at a zoo or they want to work at a museum. Others have more kind of practical reasons for joining, that they want to get a job eventually in some field and they want some experience before they seek paid position elsewhere, or they think it's going to look good on their college application essays, or their parents want to keep them busy and out of trouble. A lot of reasons why they join, but what we find is that they stick with it for a long time. They really do enjoy the experience and enjoy the opportunity to build their interpersonal skills and interacting with the public as well as to build their STEM knowledge and gaining expertise in these different exhibits that they're working at. You looked at institutions in the United States and the United Kingdom. Do you think cultural differences play into the perception of youth docents in different nations? And did you see any evidence of that? So when we first started building this partnership, then we reached out to lots of different sites in the United States and in the United Kingdom. And what we learned is that the experiences of youth educators in the United Kingdom are in many ways very similar to those in the U.S., but there are sometimes some differences. So for instance, the youth educators in the United Kingdom might be more likely to participate in these programs through some kind of a school learning opportunity, and they are sometimes even paid for the opportunity to participate in these programs. So the experiences there are a little bit different. There seems to be a little bit of a cultural difference in what it means to volunteer, whereas here in the U.S., the teenagers are more likely to participate in these programs for a range of reasons, regardless of their economic status or their background. In the U.K., there seems to be a little bit of negativity around the idea of volunteerism as being only for the elite, that it's only if you're really in the upper class, then you have the opportunity to engage in volunteerism. Let's go back to this idea of youth educators having a particularly beneficial effect on more youthful visitors. What does this tell us and what does this help us know about educating young people? So teachers have known for a long time how effective it is to have uh, peer tutors or to have another kid in the class help to explain content to someone who's struggling with it. And I think that what we're documenting here is that this is true in informal situations as well, that having someone who's close to you in age be excited about and share that excitement with you is really helpful in both sparking your own interest and in helping you to learn whatever the content is of that exhibit that you're visiting. And we're 
chatting right now in the middle of a pandemic that has closed a lot of museums and zoos and other sorts of these informal learning centers. And these closures, of course, they come with all sorts of stressors and pressures. But presumably, at least in some cases, this moment in our history is giving the leadership of these places a little time to think about what they want a visitor's experience to look like in the future when they reopen. What what are you hoping that they take away from your study? It might be easy to say, well, given that we're trying to reopen during this pandemic, we should take all the docents off the floor and just have the experience be that you walk through the museum or the zoo or the aquarium and not interact with anyone. And we would say, please don't do that because there is a real benefit to having those docents available to provide interpretation, to provide context, to help you gain your interest in the topic and to learn more. So even though it may require some adjustment and modification of how you have those docents interacting with the public, I do think it's important to keep them there. And then more broadly, as museums are stressed for funding and thinking about how do we staff our exhibits, how do we prioritize our funding needs right now, I think the data in our projects suggests the importance of maintaining youth educator programs. This is only one piece of the benefits. We're documenting that it helps those visitors who come through the sites. But we know that these programs help the teens as well. So it's almost like a double bang for your buck, that if you invest in youth educator programs, you're helping the teens and you're helping your visitors. Let's talk a little bit about how this research was conducted. It was very collaborative. It included academic researchers. It it included practice-based partners. And even the teens themselves got involved in the process of shaping the research questions and gathering the data. You've said that you think this is an important and a refreshing model for human-centered research. I can imagine, though, that there are some more fuddy types who say, well, that's just not how we do things. How do you get over entrenched views about what research is and how it should be done? I think by documenting the benefits. So it's always hard as a researcher to figure out what you want to examine and to make sure that it's going to be ecologically valid. And what we're learning through this project is that you have to go to the folks who have their boots on the ground. And that does include the teenagers themselves, getting their perspective, getting them to look over the content questions, getting them to... Some of our teens right now are actually out with stopwatches. Well, they were before COVID. Hopefully they'll get back to it soon. But out in the sites with stopwatches, timing, how long do visitor family groups stay at each of these exhibits and trying to learn more about what's the ideal time that we engage with the public when they come to our exhibits. So getting them involved as data collectors, as helping to contribute to what the research questions are and helping to think through what the findings mean when we gather the data back together. All of that helps to build the integrity of the project. And we find that these long lasting relationships are beneficial for the sites. They're beneficial for us as researchers. And we hope that they're beneficial for the public and thinking about how do you approach a museum when you're coming to visit that museum site. So we see lots of benefits to these collaborative research practice partnerships. You're helping them challenge so many norms, the norms of what it means to be a docent, the norms of what it means to be a researcher. And a research participant, too. Yeah, that's I mean, that's really cool. Like, that's got to make you feel pretty good. I think what makes me feel good is when I see how excited the teens are. So this summer, we have often the members of the academic team have often been sitting in on Zoom meetings with the teenagers And we tell them what we're finding and we ask them to provide us some ideas on what we should be looking at next. How should we change the surveys that we're doing? 
And they get so excited. Hearing their excitement gets me energized for days. It's so much more insightful than me trying to figure out what exactly I should study. Hearing it from them and hearing their interpretation of what they're learning, what we're learning is really, really refreshing. A lot of your work has focused on children who challenge norms, both within their own groups and peer groups and outside of those groups. What draws you to that subject? So I used to be a high school teacher. And when I was a high school teacher, I taught English. I often found that in my conversations with teenagers around these classic literary tomes often came around to them saying, why did it have to be this way? And wanting to push back. And so that got me intrinsically interested in hearing kids' voices and capturing instances where kids recognize injustice, recognize something that's happening that shouldn't be happening, and what they do to try to affect change. And so these youth educator programs are one way of affecting change, that they get out there and interact with the public to change the narratives around what does it mean to visit a zoo or what does it mean to come into a technology museum and who is it who does the education in these sites. But I've tackled this in lots of different domains of study as well. So for instance, I do a lot of research on bystander intervention and um, instances of bullying. And consistently, what I find is that kids are empowered to speak up, to stand up, and to do what's right when given the opportunity. Clearly, you're into research, right? You're passionate about it. You love it. You believe it has value. And also, in order to kind of commit yourself to that, you had to take yourself out of the classroom. I imagine that was a, a tough decision. It was. It was like the hardest day of my life when I walked out of my classroom for the last time. But at the same time, I teach intro to psych now. And so I have 200 young people who I see a couple times a week who are really not that different than high school students in a lot of ways. So I still have that opportunity almost daily to interact with young people and shape you know, the opportunities that they have for learning. But I also love engaging in research because it gives me the chance to hear kids' voices. And it often ways to give me the chance to go deeper than I was able to as a teacher. I think that the opportunities to have an impact are really different when you are conducting research than when you are in the classroom, but they're both really important ways to have an impact. And what I've valued about this move towards research is that it hasn't removed that opportunity to have an impact. It's just changed it a little bit. Well, and another example is that some of your other work has focused on creating inclusive STEM environments in high schools. We live in a world in which women and students of color and queer students often find science and technology to be really unwelcome spaces. What are you seeing that is promising in this arena? So the Inclusive STEM Project is brand new. We're just starting data collection on it this fall, and I have been up long nights thinking about how does it mean to be um, inclusive in STEM environments, in virtual environments instead of in person? And how is that going to change the opportunities that these kids have? And I have no idea. We have to see as we start gathering the data this fall. We'll see how that goes. But the informal learning spaces in the current project, the project where we surveyed youth educators, we started this project in part because we were interested in whether these informal sites would be more inclusive spaces for kids where you could get out of those expectations or stereotypes about who can and should be a scientist. And what we find is that our youth educators are a diverse group. I mean, it really does depend on where the site is located because often teenagers need to have access to get to these sites and may not drive yet. But we do find that the practitioners at all of these sites are heavily invested in issues around equity and justice and ensuring that 
the youth educators who come through their sites have opportunities to experience STEM without stereotypes holding them back. About 70% of the youth educators who we work with in this larger project are actually female, and a large number of them are ethnic minorities as well. Let's fast forward, you know, 10 years into the future. You walk into a museum that has been well-informed by this research. What does the experience look like from a visitor's point of view? So hopefully, first, we get diverse groups of visitors coming into these sites. I hope that we see increasingly that informal science learning sites are seen as places for everyone. And then when you enter the sites, I hope that the individuals who you encounter, the docents who you see, are reflective of many different ethnic groups, age groups, reflective of both male and female docents in those sites, and that you have an opportunity to interact with the face of science right there in that museum as being a diverse face of science. I hope that the exhibits reflect and represent scientists from diverse backgrounds and that the voices of the docents are from diverse backgrounds as well. I also hope that there are lots and lots of docents in the sites and that it's not just a walkthrough experience, that you actually do have the opportunity and the chance to talk with many different people as you move through these sites. How important is what is exhibited and the way it's exhibited to making the space not just welcoming for visitors, but also welcoming for the volunteers and staff members who are the guides? Our practitioner partners in the sites are always coming back around to these questions of how do we tell the stories of the scientific content that we're looking at in ways that are reflective of our increasingly diverse world? And also recognizing that in some dimensions of science, it hasn't been particularly inclusive in the past. Uh, it's a goal that I think all of our sites have is to reflect a representative view of science, but at the same time, it's sometimes challenging. I think our most exciting site in that realm is the center of the cell, which is in the United Kingdom in London. And the bottom floor is a functioning biomedical research laboratory. And you walk across the suspended bridge and look on researchers who are actively practicing whatever biomedical research they're doing as you are entering the museum. And that museum site has actively aimed to ensure that the researchers who are represented down on the floor who you're walking above are a diverse group of researchers. So you're seeing science in action there that does reflect the diversity of the neighborhood, the community, and the city of London. Okay, I love this idea. And also, if I was a biomedical researcher, I would feel so vulnerable and exposed all the time. I know. It's really, I mean, it's like a warren of labs that you're just looking down over. Um, and then the museum itself is really cool. It's shaped like different pieces of the cell. So as you enter the different parts of the building, like outside, there's a piece that looks a little like a hedgehog, but is actually a neuron. And you walk through the different pieces of the cell. So it's aimed to be completely immersive, that you really are throwing yourself into the world of cell biology as you enter that site. Okay, so I just realized something, which is you clearly do this kind of research because you care about young people. I think you also probably do it because you get to visit a bunch of these sites. Oh, it's awesome. I love these sites. <laughs> and, uh, you know, this is just a smattering of the sites that I work with. But every single one I learn something new from as I walk in the door and I talk to the folks who are on the floor. I talk to the visitors. I love it. And my team does, too. I mean, the undergraduate research assistants I have working with me. I meet for the first time next Friday, and I had to send them this terribly sad email yesterday where I said, we can't do any of our museum-based work in person this semester. I know it's going to break your hearts, but we'll still find ways to engage with the data. I have hours of videotape we're going to look at. And the institutions themselves are 
changing a lot right now in order to accommodate in-person visitors in a safe way, but also in order to provide spaces and experiences that are virtual and meaningful for people who who can't make it in right now. Absolutely. So our sites are very different in terms of the approaches that they're taking, and they're all being incredibly innovative about trying to keep creating opportunities for learning and opportunities to engage. Some of the sites are fully open right now. Some of them are fully closed and likely to be closed for another six months. But in all of them, the staff and the practitioners on the staff are working very hard to think creatively about how to create the best experience still for visitors, even if you can't be there in person. I'm so, so pleased to see how creative and innovative they've been with really challenging situations. Do you find that given the experiences that they've had in these collaborative projects that they are engaging these teens to try to make those decisions and try to make those decisions in ways that are going to be attractive for younger people as well? Absolutely. So I think all of our sites have been doing virtual meetings with their teens. And the focus of some of those virtual meetings has been, let's think creatively here. What do we do? How do we keep you guys engaged, but then what ideas do you have for us continuing to work with the general population who we would normally be working with face-to-face right now? Because teens have some pretty good ideas. Amazing ideas. Every time I sit down in one of those meetings, I get excited about the things that they're thinking of and the ideas that they have. That's Kelly Lynn Mulvey. Her team's recent report is focused on young educators in places like museums and zoos. Kelly Lynn Mulvey, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday morning at 1030 on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.